This is new classical tracks from listener-supported American public media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word, and then take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Pianist Yael Weiss, violinist David Kaplan, and cellist Peter Stumpf have each had very expansive careers. They're a trio now, and recently they recorded the complete piano trios of Beethoven, and the conversation is incredibly delightful. They know each other very well, and usually they start off their rehearsals with coffee and perhaps an eclair, and they talk about a lot of things and do a lot of things, and eventually they get around to making music. It's a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. It's new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. What I want to do is just start off by having each of you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about you, what you want our listeners to know about you. I'm Mark Kaplan. I'm the violinist of the trio. And I've been playing trios for decades and decades, and I have a background also in physics. And so I also have a background in pastry cooking, which has been occupying most of the last 24 hours. And these things uh, kind of will guide a lot of my responses. If I say something all of a sudden about panettone, then you'll understand where that's coming from. Um, and I grew up in Syracuse. I live in, in Bloomington now, where I teach at the Jacobs School of Music. And yes, life is a mixture of touring and teaching and performing and having fun. I'm Yael Weiss. I'm the pianist of the Weiss Kaplan Stumpf Trio. I uh, grew up in Israel, which is a, not an easy place to think about these days, I know. Um, I currently live in New York. I moved to the U.S. as a teenager to study with two wonderful Beethoven pianists and teachers, Leon Fleischer and Richard Good. And Beethoven has been a very important part of my life since since I was a kid, and it included various projects, various commissioning projects related to Beethoven, and just really a lot of joy in performing uh, everything. By the composer. And are you teaching in New York? Where are you? Are you in New York City? I am in New York City. Yes. I just like my colleagues Peter and Mark, I used to live in Bloomington and taught at the university there, but at the moment I'm concentrating on performing and living in New York City. Wonderful. Peter. Hi, I'm Peter Stumpf, and I'm the cellist of the trio. And I I think that something that's always been very important to me is playing chamber music. And I've done it for almost my whole life, starting when I was maybe 11 years old. And I played in a string quartet for 21 years, the Johannes String Quartet, and was touring with them um, and have been in the trio for, I think, nine years. And I think that's been the thing that, that's kind of been the consistent throughout my whole career. Um, I've also played in orchestras. I played in the Philadelphia Orchestra as the associate principal for 12 years, and I played 
in the Los Angeles Philharmonic as the principal cellist for 10 years. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts and lived in Philadelphia, lived in Los Angeles. Now I live in Bloomington, Indiana, and I'm teaching at Indiana University. So I have kind of shifted the focus of my career towards teaching and playing chamber music and, and solo playing in the last 10 years. It sounds like Indiana University is the connection for the three of you. Is that where this trio started and, and had its birth? Well, actually, um, not quite. Uh, Peter and I met many, many years ago um, in Marlboro, at the Marlboro Music Festival. And in fact, we played, uh, I remember, a Haydn piano trio together. So our, on our, our first meeting uh, was around the trio repertoire. And um, I joined uh, the trio with Mark um, when Mark's trio, in fact, had some change in membership. And then Peter joined us later. So the, the Indiana connection is, is, I think, came later in the life of our various meetings. You've all expressed how chamber music is so important to you. What is it about the trio setting? that you love so much, if you'd each like to share that, because there's lots of chamber settings, but this one is somewhat unique. Well, the trio is unusual among chamber groups because the the group that has by far the most repertoire is the string quartet. And these days, the the kind of technical expertise that's required of this professional string quartet is so high, which is great. But it means that that you can't do what we do, which is that we all have independent lives. We rehearse a lot, usually prior to concerts or recordings. And over a period of years, we develop a, a big repertoire and we be, develop a lot of, of specific ways that we relate to each other. But we don't generally spend days rehearsing fine bow strokes. Um, and so you don't have to do that with a with a trio to the same extent. You still have to do it. Um, when I started playing trios, then the whole idea was that the three of us were very active soloists and that at the same time we could be a trio. And I think that continues now, um, although like I'm not as active as a soloist as I used to be. But there is something about the way that in a trio you can have three individual voices that still speak as one. I, I would add to that, that uh, for me as a pianist, there is re really not that much of a difference between, let's say, playing a Beethoven piano sonata and playing a Beethoven trio. Uh, they come from the same source of inspiration. The piano writing is very similar. And in fact, one feeds the other. Uh, I grew up in such a way that it would be inconceivable to learn just one part of a composer's uh, output, you know. So I think by playing the trios, it's a very natural extension of my life as a pianist. And more than that, it's really absolutely necessary in order to, to gain a deeper understanding uh, of the composer's writing, the composer's language. I mean, I think for, for me, this is Peter, um, as a cellist, the role of the cello and the piano trio um, has more emphasis on solo playing than than playing in the quartet. Um, in the string quartet, 
most of the time it's a the function is as the baseline and as the foundation of the harmony and in the trio there's more independence and there's more variety um sometimes i'm playing an inner voice sometimes i'm playing the bass sometimes i'm playing the the solo voice the role shifts depending on on the kind of counterpoint or texture that the composer is trying to achieve it's uh has certain challenges and and variety and interest that is uh very appealing for a cellist Together, you have just recently recorded the complete piano trios of Beethoven. Have any of you recorded these works previously? Silence. <laughs> no, this is, uh, I believe this is the very first uh, recording of those works for us. What is so significant about these trios? Why? I mean, as I look at the three of you and listen to you about your extensive careers, and now you are just recording these works for the first time, that tells me something about the works, that they are definitely challenging. Why are they so significant in the repertoire? Because they're by Beethoven. <laughs> well, this, this is really, uh, for me, I think the most significant body of works for piano trio. Uh, both in terms of just the number of works, but also, of course, in terms of their variety and the wonderful opportunity to play works all the way from Beethoven's very Opus One, the very first works that he decided to publish as Opus One. Of course, he wrote other works prior to that. And all the way until Opus 97 with the Archduke or even Opus 121, which are the Kakadu variations in our set, we included not only the six main piano trios, but also two of the important variation sets. So the range is quite incredible. In fact, the earliest work on those three CDs is the set of variations, Opus 44. The Opus number is misleading. It was actually composed very, very early in uh, 1792, even prior to the Opus 1 trios, and then going again all the way up until the Kakadu variations, which really belongs to Beethoven's uh, final period. So we have early Beethoven, middle Beethoven with the Opus 70 trios, which includes the Ghost Trio, and then late Beethoven. And that's an incredible journey to go through together uh, with two, two wonderful colleagues. And I will just add to that, that we had the opportunity before we even thought about recording all three uh, CDs to perform the complete cycle of the Beethoven trios, which we did first uh, in Israel many years ago. And having done that, I think the opportunity to keep playing those works, to keep rehearsing them, to delve more deeply into them through pre preparing them for recordings was just something that was very, very special, I think, for, for all of us and really helped us in defining who we are as a group and growing our identity as a piano trio. Peter, you mentioned how as the cellist in this trio and in these works in particular, you have a more independent role. And that was very intentional in the way that Beethoven composed these pieces. He was very innovative in that way. Can you talk a little bit more about the innovations that he incorporated into these trios? Sure. So 
as Yalen mentioned, there's, it, you know, it spans almost, you know, his whole life in terms of the trios written very early to the, to the late. And there is kind of an evolution that happens in the cello part along with that. You know, in, in Haydn trios and also in Mozart trios, the cello actually is independent. It's an independent line. It's more subtle. It's often doing something kind of in the, you know, just above the bass line or in the middle range. Not so often a solo line, but also some solo parts. Um, in the Beethoven, it begins that way with the Opus One, where it's more focused on the bass with occasional um, solo lines and some inner voices and some counterpoint. And then as, as it goes on, it becomes more soloistic and more kind of in harmony with the violin, harmonizing the violin or either as a, as a lower voice or an upper voice. It also starts to go higher into the upper ranges of the cello. And so when you get to Opus 70 and, and, and the Archduke, he actually goes, you know, quite high. And often it's close to the end of the piece, uh, you'll suddenly have the cello emerge way up high. And he does this in the quartets as well, particularly in the late quartets. And there's something about that that he really liked, you know, this somehow having the cello suddenly emerge in the end and have the, it's a, because it's sort of an exalted kind of sound, you know, when you go up high like that, you know, it has a certain intensity. And uh, he, he clearly was, uh, you know, um, inspired by that. And so he really kind of took the cello further into a more solo role. And actually, uh, you know, I've, I've read that he was interested in writing a cello concerto for Romberg. And, and uh, Romberg said no, <laughs> he, because he had his own concertos he wanted to play that he was writing. And uh, so so we lost that one. Uh, <laughs> can, you imagine, can you imagine saying no to Beethoven when he wanted to write a concerto for your instrument? Well, no, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that is apparently what happened. Um, and so we lost that, the cello concerto. But in any case, you can almost see how Beethoven started to become more interested in the cello. As it, and then he, he ended up writing five cello sonatas. And they also span the range from Opus 5 to Opus 69 to Opus 102. So um, I think it kind of mirrors the, the interest in the cello as a, an important instrument. One, one thing that's related to what Peter was just saying is that there's, there's a fabulous article about the Opus 69 cello sonata and its manuscript by Lewis Lockwood, where he ta talks about how all the scratchings and scribblings in Beethoven's manuscript can help us see how he was thinking. And so much of what he was thinking had to do with the relationship between the instruments and which voice would have a tune and in which octave would it have that tune? And if it was the piano, how would it be expressed? Would it be like in single notes or in octaves or in broken octaves? 
and and it's it's fascinating to see the extent of Beethoven's uh, self conscious working of this. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, of course, Beethoven wrote a, a triple concerto for a piano trio and orchestra, which is one of the very few works that we have uh, f- for this kind of ensemble and orchestra. And we we have played that piece, and that piece very much um, is an example of the cello uh, being used in in some of those high registers that Peter just mentioned before, I think maybe even more so than than anywhere else. Um, So I think Beethoven certainly used uh, his piano trio experiments and explorations uh, to try out different ways of engaging the the different instruments uh, together. And uh, also I think in the the piano part, although, of course, uh, the piano writing is very much connected with similar kinds of piano writing that he had at the time of writing the trios at the same time with the piano sonatas. three independent voices, basically soloists within these trios, and yet your job is to be subtly integrated, and of course that requires incredible listening. How do you go about finding that that proper balance so that everything that needs to be heard is heard? That's sort of the heart of playing chamber music, isn't it? And uh, And we spend a lot of our rehearsal time working at that and also a lot of our performance time, because performances really are rehearsals in in that sense. They're all perennially works in progress. Um, I would say one thing I mentioned before about string quartets that involves a very specific kind of work among the strings, we do some of that in the trio. So we'll often have a rehearsal of just Peter and me. And we'll be going over articulations, bowings, intonation, that kind of thing. Not to the extent of in a string quartet, but enough so that we don't have to take trio time for it. But I think the idea of three voices that complement each other is something that has to do with also personality and how we get along as personalities. And I think it's probably not telling tales out of school if I if I say that a lot of our trio rehearsal time is not spent playing and it's also not spent arguing about um, should we make the crescendo starting from the C sharp or from the E it's spent talking about who knows what which could be current events it could be something that, uh, uh, that I mean Peter tends to arrive at a rehearsal always with a cup of coffee and what what did he have with the coffee that morning and and so we spend a fair amount of time doing what seems like wasting time but it's actually i think very germane to our to our work process yes and aside from the cup of coffee i think it's essential to mention that there's often an eclair uh, that comes with it um occasionally there are other pastries that provide them um, uh, the beginning point for interesting conversations. <laughs> um, but I, I would just say that uh, yeah, I think for me, one of the magic 
magical moments about playing chamber music is that it really reflects, I think, our ways of interacting with, with people in daily life. Because in some ways, right, we are, we are both separate from each other, but also always connected to each other. And chamber music, and, and in my in this case, the, the piano trios is very much a manifestation of those kinds of relationships. So that means also that if we play the same score with perhaps other people, the music itself changes, even though we may have may, may still be the same separate individuals as we were before. But when we connect with other people, other personalities, the conversations change, whether they're musical conversations or actual verbal conversations. So I think that in some ways, chamber music really is a beautiful reflection of our um, connectivity with, with other people. Let's say it's also a, a beautiful example of how maybe someday the world could connect with itself, and which really doesn't happen. But it it's something where it shows that maybe, maybe it could, because it's an area where people feel very, very passionately about things, and yet somehow we can work together and make things happen. Yeah, I think I I think the desire, this is Peter, by the way, um, the desire to play this music, you know, I think is certainly a driving force for all of us, you know, and it's in our best interest to to make it work, you know, and and but but I think the interesting thing about the our interactions, you know, about the the coffee and the eclairs and everything. Shout out to Chalk New York for their incredible eclairs, the best I've ever had. But um, it's interesting because, as I understand it, the great director Ingmar Bergman, before he would film one of his many great masterpieces, he would often have the actors go live together for a month or more on an island. (laughs) So that they were really developing relationships with each other. And then that would be kind of a source for their roles that they would play in these films. And I, I'm, you know, was fascinated by film and interested in film. And and when I would observe his films, I just couldn't get over how they seem to be so intimate. That the people seem to to really actually be having a relationship on screen and and then to find this out. And I think that's kind of what Mark was alluding to. I think, I actually think that's really important in chamber music in, in a similar way. It, it, it creates certain understandings that you wouldn't necessarily get by rehearsing. Although the, the other extraordinary thing in chamber music is, is the lines of communication that are happening that are a mystery, you know, that we don't really understand, you know, how are we actually doing this or just entering exactly at the same time without there really being a cue or, or something like that, you know, where, how does this happen? And it, it's not even that it's, well, it's in time or in rhythm. It's not, it's, it's, there's, there's a kind of communication and sense, sensory sensitivity that's happening that is nonverbal and 
undeniable and absolutely reliable, you know, and that's always been kind of the great mystery and and source of fascination for me with chamber music. Do you I mean, ever? This is, oh, go sorry. ahead, Mark. I don't even have to ask any questions. I'll just. <laughs> yeah, we're we're ready to blab away. I was going to say that I, maybe because I'm sitting in my studio now, um, I teach, I coach a lot of chamber music. And what Peter is just talking about is one of the hardest things for students to grasp because they learn playing chamber music. To begin with, they learn by counting. And counting is not generally a really good way to make music at all for almost anything. What Peter talks about playing exactly together in any given civic situation, there is a sort of right time to play the next note. And part of what makes a trio or any chamber group really work is that they have to a very high degree already to begin with a very similar idea of when is that right time. Uh, if that's not there, I think it's very, very hard to make the group work. Okay, let's bring this back to the Beethoven trio specifically. Can you give me an example where it was the right time? Like, where do we hear that on this recording that just is like, wow? Well, I, I have to, I can't resist telling a story that is not related to this recording, but it's exactly about what you were talking about. And it has to do with when I first started playing trios and we put together our first concert. And one of the pieces on the program was the Cockadoo Variations, Opus 121A, which starts with the three people playing a G together. That's it. And uh, and the three of us in that group had all played a lot of chamber music and we thought, okay, we know what we're doing. But we could not start that note together. And we rehearsed it and we rehearsed it. and. Uh, and the more we started listening carefully, the more it was clear that it was not together. And at that point, I was reading a book by a, comp a composer, a writer, Tom Robbins, in which he describes butterfly migration. And he talks about how butterflies, there will be like thousands of them that alight upon a tree. And then they take off exactly together, as nearly as anybody can see. And they filmed it and looked at it in detail. And they can't see that anybody gives a signal or that there's anything. And so finally, I said, okay, guys, we're going to do this like butterflies. We're going to sit here with your eyes closed for at least a minute. And then when everybody feels like it's the right time to play, we play. No signal, nothing. And the other two looked at me and kind of rolled their eyes and said, okay, Mark, uh, did you... Uh, eat anything strange this morning but um but i said no let's try it and so we did it and we sat there for probably two minutes and then we played exactly together now that wouldn't have probably worked had we not done the rehearsal beforehand but that moment sticks in my mind so now I should let somebody else give a more relevant example to this current recording. Two very different kind of examples. Uh, one very energetic would certainly be the opening of the Ghost Trio, where we are all in, in unison. Uh, I 
think that would be a good example. And another one with a completely contrasting character would be uh, perhaps the uh, slow movement, which is the third movement of the Archduke trio. starts with just the solo piano but but very sh shortly afterwards all three of us repeat that together and that would be a fantastic example I think for something where if you don't have a sense of timing that is really naturally and without using any words you know it cannot be explained you know that it has to be felt truly deeply together. it's essential in order to make uh, that particular music happen. I, I was thinking, I think those are great examples. The one that I know that I'm often very kind of on high frequency sort of awareness zone is in the slow movement of the ghost. where you know, we're holding these notes for a very long time and we have to change exactly together, you know, and um, it, that's why I think that, that thing that I'm talking about, that sort of almost like a magnetic field or something, like we're tuned into it and so we just sort of, and, and if you're not, it isn't together. Like if, you're, if you let that lapse, it just goes. Um, and it's, it's something that you're picking up somehow from, from you know the others but that's that's the movement where I feel like I'm kind of at my peak of that you know kind of concentration it's interesting you bring up the slow movement Peter because it seems to me um, especially with Beethoven but with many composers but especially in Beethoven's work the slow movement is where you can really tell what's happening I usually go to the slow movements first because that's where he packs in the most emotions and where all of a sudden he really seems to touch our humanity. Do you feel that too when you're playing? Certainly. I mean, they're all different. They all have different messages and different meanings. But yes, I think it's sort of sort of the heart center of the piece. And and uh, Maybe everything is is related to that in some way, you know, kind of is in contrast to it or, yeah, that's kind of always how it feels. I'd, I'd like to also mention that often people, in my opinion, do not give enough attention to the early trios, the Opus One trios and the slow movements, which are absolutely magnificent and so heartfelt and so profound at Opus One, the young Beethoven, you know, we, we tend to go for something uh, like the second movement, of course, of the Ghost Trio or the slow movement of the Archduke. Yet for me, it's actually the slow movements of the Opus One Trio, especially Opus One Number One and Opus One Number Two, that are so moving and so true and so sincere in their expression. 
and Dean Opus One, it's quite incredible. Uh, I don't know that we've heard something that has been expressed so directly before. Um, yeah, this is Mark, and I would I would agree with that. That for me, you can't pick favorites, but in terms of pure beauty, I find the the slow movement of Opus One Number Two to be just indescribable. I can say, okay, the slow movement of the Archduke maybe has, especially being this sort of set of variations, covers a wider range of human emotion. But there's something about Opus One Number Two, and what you were saying about the slow movement being the heart of it, Peter, I think is is very, very important. Sometimes I almost wonder if if this was part of Beethoven's conception that the slow movement is where the germ of the piece starts out and that that's where everything that's set up in the first movement can find its expression, its fulfillment. And then the last movement more often than not is a kind of release because we can't sustain that level of emotional intensity forever. So then we have to release it. Do you ever feel like Beethoven is right there with you when you're playing his music? Maybe sitting on your shoulder or sitting in front of you and you're almost channeling him? I, I, f- I feel that actually quite a lot. And I welcome him to join me when I play his music. Another point I wrote about briefly in the liner notes is when I visited Vienna for the sole purpose of visiting the different residences where Beethoven lived and where he composed the different pieces and connecting uh, with him in some way through the physical space where those works were conceived. So there's, I think there is a kind of presence. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily Ludwig van Beethoven as a person himself, but rather the, the the spirit and the energy that uh, brought about those wonderful masterpieces. Ash, this is Peter. Um, I uh, have a book and I, that I got a very, very long time ago, and it was called uh, Beethoven in the Eyes of His Contemporaries. And it is all uh, things that were written about Beethoven by other people. Literally anybody, you know, the maid, the housekeeper, the, you know, a friend's uh, colleagues, other musicians, performers, everyone. And this, it, it was an incredible portrait, you know, and it sort of revealed this, you started to get a sense of who this person was. And I think that I am conscious of when I'm playing Beethoven very much. I think what 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 I kind of imagined to be something of who this was, someone who had unbelievable, it's beyond courage because it's just 
it's pure conviction to follow their inspiration with complete, it's not, it's sort of not, it's singular. It's sort of not a binary thing. It's like completeness to the, that's very, very rare. And I think it was hard for him to, in some ways, to sort of relate to people. And yet there was this sense of needing to communicate so strongly, you know. And I think, if anything, it's that that I sort of feel I'm, I'm connecting to, and I, I'm I'm getting a taste of what that's like when I'm playing it. You know, it, it's sort of like I get to inhabit a little bit of it. Um, and and then there's another part of me that says, "What are you thinking? You know, <laughs> you know, how the hell do you know? You know." <laughs> um, and and I, I sometimes imagine, you know, if I were ever to encounter Beethoven in some way, you know, be like. What were you doing? Why did you? Do that? <laughs> I get it was just something that I kind of think of as humorously, but I think on the other side, though, really, I, I, I feel like that's kind of my my experience, at least. Um, I don't really feel Beethoven sitting on my shoulder. However, I feel, and this is not just with Beethoven's music. I often feel a relationship with the space, like the actual air molecules around me in the actual room, and that how that space reacts with the music I'm playing. And I think that Beethoven, or some spirit of Beethoven, is part of that space. As, as I experience it. Um, the other thing I was going to say in terms of Beethoven being over on my shoulder is that we, as a trio, do play a lot also of new music. And that's a situation where we can have the composer, well, not sitting on our shoulder, but but in the very close environment. And different composers react in different ways and have different kinds of input. And it's all welcome. And it's, it provides me a context to imagine how Beethoven as a composer might be weighing in on our rehearsals. Mark, you have said that recording these Beethoven trios has been a transformative and humbling experience for you. Why is that? Can you share that with us? Well, humbling because it is a cliche, but the music, this music is so awe-inspiring that even when you play it your very best, then you don't think, wow, I've really got it. Or at least I don't. I think, well, that felt like a really wonderful experience. Um, so, and there's no I in that. It was something about the, the way the group and the feeling happened. Um, the other reason I wrote that it has to do with what I wrote, I think, right after it, which is that many pieces that when you record them, and you do a take of a movement or something, 
and you listen back and you think, well, you know, that phrase didn't really do what I wanted it to do in terms of expressive power. And so you do it again and you play it and it's got more vibrato and it's got more juice and it's got more something, uh, maybe more dynamic range or you bring out the, the shape of the phrase better. Um, and, and that sort of solves that. But you can't do that with Beethoven because the music is not dependent on such simple things. Uh, you need to make it better by making it better. You can only make it better by actually increasing the depth of your understanding of it. And very hard to put that into words, but when it happens, then you know it. Okay, I have one final question. As you were learning these works and ultimately recording them, what did each of you discover about yourselves that surprised you? That's a good question. I don't usually say that to interviewers. You want to start, Mark? Or are you still thinking? Mm, I will. I'll, I'll start, but I want to give actually quite a simple answer. Um, what I discovered about myself in working on these pieces, I think I discovered that I have more in myself than I thought I did. And more patience than I thought I had. And that yet there is so much more that I need to have. For me, I, I, um, I don't really have experience in recording very much. I mean, so uh, I hadn't done anything approaching a project like this. Um, and I didn't necessarily have any preconceived ideas about, about it. But then as I was doing it, I did start to, to see that there was a, a real value in the experience and that, that it helped me to kind of be more discerning about my own work, you know, and it, it just it, it broadened my awareness. You know, it, it, and it gave a new dimension to my awareness of, of playing and performing and interpreting and all, all, of, all of the things that are involved in, in being a performing musician. Yes, I think that what surprised me most, now being on the other side of recording the complete uh, Beethoven trios, is that. I realized that I love these pieces even more than before. And it seems almost impossible that that should happen because I've always been in love with this group of works and with Beethoven's music in general. But there's something about it now that has deepened for me. And so much so that... I've been spending a lot of time since recording the trios, even more time now, you know, with the sonatas, the, the piano sonatas, the concertis, the variations in a new way than I have before. So there's a kind of just embrace of Beethoven, embrace of his works, and a joy in discovering more and more about his music.
the complete piano trios by Beethoven, featuring the Weiss Kaplan Stump Trio. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker. <laughs>